And do please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. This morning we're looking at verses 13 to 18. And I uh, wasn't able to squeeze the book of James into 2023. It's going to spill over into 2024. And uh, what a joy it's been to walk through this book and to see James and his heart for the fruit of salvation bearing out in our lives, the wisdom that we need to live out our salvation. And so as we reach this section on prayer, I think it's helpful for us to understand the context that James speaks in. In the beginning of chapter 5, he's been giving us help for how to deal when things go bad, when suffering comes, when we, like he said in chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials and difficulties of various kinds. How do we, how do we endure, endure patiently? How do we remain steadfast? And those were the subjects in the beginning of chapter 5 that he was, he was telling his, us and his readers how to endure. The trials that they were facing, they were kind of specified, at least some of them for us, was that they were working and laboring, but their wages were being withheld. Uh, they would try to go to the courts to get justice, and they just wouldn't get it. The judges are in the pocket of landowners. And so how to face those trials, James points us to some of the prophets of the Old Testament that endured patiently. Job remained steadfast under trials, difficulties that Job and others faced. And so those examples of the prophets have been helpful for us in, in enduring hardships, enduring suffering, enduring trials. But here he takes us to another prophet, the prophet Elijah, and he's going to give us a tool for dealing with trials, difficulties, in fact, all of life, the most important tool of all, and that is prayer. And Elijah, as a man of prayer, a righteous man, is an example for us in how we should approach prayer. So follow along as I read James five thirteen to 18. This is God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word for us today. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to sit under your word this last time of this calendar year, Lord. And as we make transitions throughout the years, Lord, we confess that though many things change in our lives, you remain the same, that the the grass withers and the, the flowers, they fade, but your word endures forever. Lord, give us a sense of the eternal and unchangeable character that you have revealed in yourself and your word. Thank you for its power 
and the effectiveness of it in our lives. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be molded to it, that we would look into this mirror and not walk away unchanged, but be different people. By the power of your Holy Spirit, work in us so that we are sanctified by the truth. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for praying that prayer for us, that we would be sanctified by the truth. And Lord, would you hear our prayer and Christ's prayer. Amen. If I'm abundantly honest with you right now, prayer has been something that's been hard for me to grasp, uh, to kind of get my head around. And let's just be really kind of frank about it. When you are praying, you're talking to somebody you can't see, you can't hear, you've never touched, but he's real. And to speak words into the air can sometimes feel to us like that's all we're doing, or we're just talking to ourselves. Maybe prayer is just like a, a self-help talk to yourself kind of thing, is kind of how it feels at times. Now, the world looking at us thinks we're crazy doing it, but let's be honest. Sometimes don't you feel like this is a hard thing to really get a handle on? What am I doing in prayer? How do I cultivate this prayer? When I got to seminary, I asked an older pastor that I knew to help me to, to develop a, a practice of prayer. And so he took me out, and everything he said was really helpful. It was encouraging. It really focused me more on maybe taking the attributes of God and praying them, having more of a, of a plan and a program for prayer, using a prayer journal, having lists of prayers, having a specific time of the day where I would pray. And, and all of his direction, his exhortation for prayer was, was good, but it felt like it was more focused on the program, on the process, and it left me a little bit lacking. And I still felt like I floundered in that area. I see this when I do premarital counseling with young couples. The book that I go through focuses in on chapter 2 on doing a self-assessment. And it says, on a scale of 1 to 10, rate your prayer life. And that's always like, oh, I didn't want to answer that one. I don't like thinking about that. Because what happens? Every time we think about our prayer life, we think, well, I could pray more often. I, I, I could pray with more, more diligence. I could have more fervency. I could, I'd love for my prayer to be more intimate with God. We could go days, weeks, without even speaking to the God who saved us. And it can grieve us. Now, those young couples, they still love each other in the premarital counseling. So they're like, you rate yourself, and they give themselves kind of a low score. But you rate your future spouse, they kind of give them a higher score. Works all the time. And I think I'm probably a three. And then the other person says, three? I gave you a seven. And it's like, well, seven is barely passing. So I don't know what you're excited about, actually. But it's a struggle for us, I think. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself. But prayer is a difficult thing to really understand and to feel like we're doing well at. I don't want to give you a guilt trip today. That's not my goal. My goal is for us to walk through how James sets out for us what prayer is about and how he takes us through this, this vital conversation 
we're having with our Father in heaven and help us to understand the when of prayer, the who should pray, even some of the variety of types of prayer that, that James introduces us to and that we see throughout the Bible and kind of the example of Elijah and why James chooses Elijah to be that example. Because a sure fruit of our, of our genuine faith is a continual conversation with our Father in heaven. So let's look at it. When do we pray? Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. When you are suffering is a time to pray, for sure. It's the first one that James lists. It fits into the context very well. Suffering times should be praying times. Suffering should put us on our knees to speak to our God, to cry out to our God, to talk to our God. Suffering pulls away all of the other helps and hopes that we have and forces us to cry out to the only one that's left. Suffering is a time for prayer. But he goes on, even in the same verse, doesn't leave another verse. The very next second sentence, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Well, wait a second, James. I thought we were going to camp on this suffering for a little bit and the necessity for prayer. He goes like rapid fire from suffering to when you're cheerful, pray. Singing praise is just a musical prayer to God because the direction of the praise is not on the horizontal to any person. It's still to God. That's what we sing. That's how we sing in church. That's how we sing on our own. Now, I ought to commend you for your singing during the Advent season. I don't think your, your singing gets any better than during the Advent. The, the, the lessons and carols that we have at the Christmas candlelight service, wonderful. Joyful. I get to sit up here and watch all your faces. Now, the rest of the year, we could use a little improvement and take the exhortation from James, not from me. If you're cheerful and you know it, Sing praise, right? And, and let's see it go from your heart up to your face so that there is joy. You know, good Christian men rejoice. You know, could there be a little more joy? I know we're the frozen chosen. I know that it's hard for us as Presbyterians to really let it out. But James tells us, if you're cheerful, sing praise. If you're not singing praise, I got to assume you got nothing to be cheerful about. And I know that's not true because we have Christ. Mild rebuke, okay, well taken. All right, because I'm, look, if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, but bucket, make a joyful noise to the Lord. And I said that in the first service, somebody in the back said, are you talking about me? And I said, well, if the shoe fits, wear it. But sing out to the Lord and don't worry what people think because who's your audience when you sing praises? It's to the Lord. Thirdly, Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. When you're sick, suffering, cheerful, sick, those times of sickness are times for us to cry out to God. And as James is going to unpack for us here, it's not just us crying out to God on our own behalf, but there are times for us to call the elders to come and to pray for us and to help us in the labor of prayer. The common theme that I'm seeing just in this first couple verses is when's the right time to pray? Always. 
You know, Paul says pray without ceasing. And I think that emphasizes for us the conversational nature that prayer is. It doesn't have to be an appointment. It doesn't have to be a regular specified period of time. It can be those things, and sometimes it's helpful to structure, to organize, to have plans and processes for for praying. But you don't have to have any of those. You can pray in the den of lions or in a fiery furnace. You, You can pray on a wall as you're watching out to an army that's going to invade. There are many times in Scripture we see David on the hillsides praying and composing to the Lord. There's no limit on when you can pray to God. We ought to live, as the theologians say, quorum Deo, before the face of God, that God is with you no matter where you go, no matter how far you go. So talk to Him wherever you're at. Converse with Him. So who should do the praying? I think that in this passage, we're called as individual Christians to pray privately, personally. This is in keeping with what James's older brother Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and to pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, Go to your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There are certainly times for private, personal prayer, and yet there are times for public prayer that you're doing with your family or other believers or at church. And those times of prayer shouldn't be drawing attention to yourself, look at me. It should be all the attention goes to God. Jesus goes on to say, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that it will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He gives the Lord's Prayer as our sample prayer so we can learn how to pray. We should do that as individuals. We should do that as families. We should do that as the church gathered together. All of us should pray. It's not restricted to any particular class of Christian. It's not you have attained super Christian status, now you can pray. Even a child in the faith can pray. And we're going to see even further that God hears the prayers. You don't have to be a super righteous person for Him to hear your prayers. We see that as Jesus teaches to pray, He gives us some very particular things within that Lord's Prayer. Can I just commend to you our shorter and larger catechism on that section on the Lord's Prayer? It takes the introduction, it takes each petition that we ask in there, breaks it down into how we should pray, how we should lift our prayers to our Heavenly Father. I think that that's a a good way for us to enhance our, our personal prayer. Prayer should be corporate. I see that James says, is anyone among you sick? Let the elders of the church, let them pray over him. But in 16, he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. 
there are times for us to do that together as a group. Uh, We see in Acts 2.42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That when the early Christians got together, they prayed together. We know this also from 1 Corinthians where Paul has to actually give corrections in chapter 11, chapter 14. You're not doing it right when you do this corporate prayer, either by what you're wearing or how you're how you're manifesting gifts of tongues. There's corrections that he brings, but the practice of corporate prayer is established, is something that's there for us to do. And then James talks about specifically for elders. Let him call the elders of the church. How did the elders get that job, and and who are the elders? You know, in the Old Testament, there were elders of the people that seemed to be the, the older people, the older men in the tribes, in the New Testament, there is a particular office of elder. And in fact, the way that he phrases it, let him call the elders of the church, the church being the ecclesia, this is the called out ones, the, the structure that Jesus left behind that says that the gates of hell won't prevail over my church, he appointed elders. If you remember back in, in Acts chapter 6, this fledgling church is getting started and there were all the needs of these widows that weren't being met, and so the, the apostles gathered together the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. They picked out the first deacons that would come and assist with the, the mercy needs of the ecclesia, of the church. But we will devote ourselves, the apostles, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, the, those apostles were the ones that went before the the elders being established as that office within the church. And their job description, devoted to the prayer and ministry of the Word. We see that Paul, when he went and did his missionary work, would go to cities, establish churches, and appoint elders. That was the job. When Paul and Barnabas were in Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, they appointed elders for them, from every church. We see in Titus 1.5, appoint elders in every city. The job of the elder is to pray. Elders should pray and minister the word. When Paul is saying farewell to the Ephesian elders that he leaves there to continue the work, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Praying for, keeping watch over the flock because you are precious to God, because Christ gave his blood for you, you ought to be precious to your elders. Your elders get together every month and we pray at our session meeting for you. We get together the next week with the other uh, deacons in the church and we, we pray for the flock. We pray for your needs. We get together in flock groups and we pray for your needs. It's part of our job, but it's especially the elder's job, but it's also everyone another in the church that we should pray and confess to one another and pray for one another. We want to give you as many opportunities as we can for that. We have a prayer vigil next week. Maybe you sign up for a slot for that. But what I particularly tell you to do, even if you don't sign up for a slot, download the prayer guide. And it's so helpful in the different categories and areas of prayer. I would often make assumptions in counseling 
when somebody would come to me and I say, what's the problem? And they would describe it. What have you done about it? I've prayed about it. And I've assumed that they've understood a, a biblical understanding of prayer. But more often than not is that I've told God what I expect him to do, what I want, kind of like the Santa Claus figure or the grandfather with a checkbook. What can you do for me, God, types of prayer. But prayer is so much bigger than that, so much more than that. Your elders are to do that. Individuals are to do that. Do we get the picture that prayer ought to be part of our lives? Here's the tough thing. Who else is to pray? Righteous persons. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another, Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. So is this a certain class of super Christians? The prayer team, the prayer ministry, the prayer. It's always ladies. I don't know how this always works out this way. But it's like this is the righteous people. And then God hears those prayers. The righteousness of the people who pray is given to them. It's foreign to them. It's all from Christ. It's because Christ, the righteous one, is the one that we're praying to. He gives us his righteousness and salvation. And so we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This isn't my righteousness that I come in. It's Christ's righteousness. And that's where the boldness and the confidence comes to his throne of grace. It's not did I measure up, did I perform, did I do everything right, then God answers my prayer. It's the person who is in Christ is heard by the Father because, get this, Jesus intercedes for us too. And the Spirit actually testifies with our spirit and utters those things that we can't even say before God and puts them before him. The Holy Spirit's praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. God is hearing your prayers because you are in Christ. Don't be afraid. Pray. Whatever you've done, however bad you've messed up, you're the righteous person who has the opportunity and the calling to pray. What are the types of prayer? Even in this short section, We have prayers for suffering. The Bible calls those prayers of lament. In the book of Psalms, there are more lament psalms than there are of any other kind of psalm. 150 of them, more laments than anything else. A lament is crying out to God in suffering. It's not complaining, whining, arguing with God. It kind of follows a pattern, most frequently, of making that complaint to God and then making a petition. Here's what's going on, God. This is how bad it is. Here's my petition is a, is a request. It's not a demand. It's God. Would you intervene? Would you change? Would you work on my behalf? There is the complaint. There's the petition. But then there's confidence. I've spoken to the king of the universe, and he'll do what's right. I offered up my desires unto him for those things that are agreeable to his will. But I'm going to leave it in his hands. I'm confident he can do, and if he wants to do, he will do it. And it closes with praise. Not the praise of an answered prayer, but the praise of, 
I have confidence that God will do this, and I'm so confident he, I'll thank Him in advance for it. Those are kind of the pattern that those psalms of lament cover. They cover things like bodily illness and emotional struggles, financial difficulties, oppression from out, from, from within, all over the place. So when we are suffering, there isn't an area of suffering that you can't talk to God about. Talk about everything. There's a prayer of praise. If you're cheerful, let him praise, sing praise. We sang today, good Christian men rejoice. Rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Let it all out because isn't God worthy of that praise? We should be a peculiar people to the people who are outside looking at us. Why do they rejoice so much? Why are they so cheerful? What do they have to be thankful about? Our world's messed up. Our societies, our countries, all the messed up in this, they get. What they don't understand is why you're cheerful. Why you have something to be praise, praising about. Let that light shine and give prayer of praise. How about prayer for healing? Verse 4, if anyone among you is sick, let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, there's a lot that's been said about this prayer. Is this person who is sick always a physical malady? Uh, some have used that word sick, unwell, to mean also other parts of our lives, whether it's emotionally or otherwise unwell, and broadening it to this isn't just for physical healing, this is just spiritual healing and overall healing. And I think it can encompass that, but I think that the primary, primary occasion is somebody's on their back sick and they can't help themselves. They call out for elders to come. Now, sin and sickness, uh, Dan Doriani in his commentary pointed out, in Jesus' day, people over-spiritualized illness. Many assumed that all tragedy and disease were the direct consequence of sin. Let me pause there. When Jesus was asked, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it his parents or him? They're always looking for a connection of, if somebody has a physical malady, it's got to be a spiritual problem. I think Doriani's right. Today in the West, we despiritualize illness. We believe in microbes and the uh, defective genes causing all the illnesses. And we deny the link between sin and illness, except in those obvious cases like a sexually transmitted disease or a cirrhosis of the liver. We can despiritualized so that every illness has nothing to do with a spiritual battle that's going on. And I don't think that fits with the biblical reality. We're a body and soul nexus that our body affects our soul. Our soul affects our body. Just think of David in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, he, he didn't confess his sin with Bathsheba, killing Uriah. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. His physical symptoms had a spiritual source. Is that always the case? Can we look at somebody and say, I know you got some sin in your heart when you got the sniffles? Not necessarily. But those are good occasions for the person who's sick to start to take inventory. If you have sin that you need to confess, James is saying, 
This would be an occasion to confess that sin to one another, that you may be healed. David was healed. Psalm 32, Psalm 51. Doriani says, they over-spiritualized illness. We de-spiritualize illness. He thinks that we should re-spiritualize sickness. Don't see it behind everything, but don't discount the effect that your sin is having on your body. There is the use of the oil. That kind of throws some people off. Do we need to have some magic oil to put on people? The oil is not what brings the healing. Do you see how this works? It says in this verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Nothing magical about the oil. What is this oil about? Some would say it's a medical use of oil. And I think there's documented use of that in the Mediterranean area that they were at. Um, but I think it's more referring to the Old Testament use of oil, particularly in those times where um, God's presence is symbolized in the anointing of the king, in the anointing of the priest, this, this time where God's presence is acknowledged and called upon. The oil used there is a physical substance, but it has a, a spiritual representation. Uh, I think it was Douglas Moo in his commentary, he says that the, there was a medicinal and ritual use, but he concludes that anoint here refers to a physical action with a symbolic significance. There's nothing magical about the oil. I asked a pastor what kind of oil he used. I said, he said, I went to a, a home and I asked an elder to pick some oil up on the way to go pray for this person. He bought like a thing of canola oil. And I was like, what? It's Mediterranean. Does it have to be olive oil? Or if it didn't work? It still worked. I think they used it. You know, it's not about the substance. It's about what it's representing, that we are calling for God's presence. And who does the, the, the healing? Well, the Lord. He's the one that heals do you know it doesn't work all the time? Although it seems like the, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Uh, the, and back in 15 it says, and the Lord will raise him up. That sounds like a lot of confidence that this is going to happen. But Paul prayed three times that the Lord would take away this thorn in the flesh and he decided not to. God's still sovereign over all these things. We should pray with confidence and hope but we don't oblige God to do what we tell him to do. He's still sovereign. He still will do all of his holy will. There's prayer of faith. It's the object of the faith. It's Christ. It's not your faithfulness. So much damage has been done with this healing uh, mentality that some will teach that if you are not healed from your disease, it's because you don't have enough faith. And it, and it berates the person for you've got to have more faith. And that's not it. It's the prayer of faith. Who is the faith in? That God can heal. That God has the power to heal. God has the right to heal or not heal whenever he chooses. Paul prayed for friends who didn't get healed. But he prayed. He continued to pray. But sometimes God does heal. Prayers of confession, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. I think prayer of confession first to God. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's, that is a beautiful feeling when we are cleansed by God. But when we confess our sins 
to one another. There is a time for when we have sinned against somebody else, we got to go make that right. Jesus describes that in Matthew 5.23. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. There's a relationship towards our having peace with one another. If we truly profess peace with God, we should go and confess to our brothers those things that we need their forgiveness for. I think confessing to one another and praying for one another could also mean a third category of those times where we solicit other brothers or other sisters in Christ, one or two or three, a small group of people that you're going to be honest with, transparent with, and ask for their prayer and their help in your struggle against maybe a besetting sin, something that you're fighting against, that you want to do battle with, but you don't want to go it alone. James says, go and confess to your brother. I think that that's an accountability partner. I think that can be somebody that you habitually get together. Feel free to ask me about this area of my life whenever you see me, and I, and I want to work at this would you pray for me and I'll, I'll pray for you? I think that's also another type of prayer of confession. Let's kind of wrap up with how to pray. Elijah. Elijah in verse 17 was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it didn't rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and gave and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Now you got to understand the people that James was writing to saw Elijah as a super prophet. They saw him as the one on the Mount of Transfiguration that was one of three that was with Jesus. He's high up there. He's like a super spiritual, you want to be like him. What's so interesting is James says that this Elijah is a man like a, with a nature like ours. And I'm, I'm wondering how many of his audience were thinking, he was a super guy. He was amazing. He had faith like unbelievable. And I would just have to go to 1 Kings 18 and 19 to see that played out because the episode of praying not for rain to come and then praying for rain to come is kind of sandwiched in between something that went on, the very pinnacle of Elijah's career, when he was opposing the idolatry of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, the Baals and the Ashtoreths. They, they had 900 prophets put together that were calling the people to go after false gods. And he says, enough of this going between the one true God and these false gods. We're going to have a contest. Do you remember how this goes? They're on Mount Carmel. And the offering, the 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 animal is sacrificed and put on the altar by these prophets of Baal. And then... Afterwards, Elijah's going to sacrifice his, and you're going to both call down fire from heaven. God, your Baal, send down fire from heaven. And they cry out, and they cry out. They beat themselves. Elijah kind of mocks them for, is your God sleeping? Maybe he's on vacation. He's not hearing you. They cry out louder. Nothing happens. Again, the high point, Elijah says, pour water on this pour tons of water, fill a trough with water all around it. And what happens? Elijah calls to heaven. He prays for fire. It comes and it burns up the sacrifice, the altar, the water all around it, the stones. Everything is vaporized. 
Yeah, there's that guy of great faith. That's the super Christian that I got to be like for God to hear me. However, the occasion of no rain coming as a judgment against Israel takes a change. And Elijah's afraid for his life. He says, "Uh uh-oh, now I've done it. I've had this huge experience. Now all these prophets are, we're killing off these, the prophets of Baal. God commanded him to do that. But now Jezebel's going to be after. She's going to kill me. So he flees. He runs away. He goes through this terrible spout, bout of depression, feeling alone. I'm the only one that, that, that is following you, God. He, want, he despairs even of his life. He went from the literal mountaintop to here down in the depths. He was a man with a nature like ours. You got some of those mountaintop experiences. You got some of those low points. But God hears you when you pray. It's not based on your performance that he's going to listen to you when you talk to him. He wants you to. And I love how this plays out. Elijah says to Ahab, the king, go up and eat and drink, for there's the sound of a rushing rain. He's hearing things? What's going on? So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. He bowed down himself to the earth, put his face between his knees. There's some posture in prayer right there. And he said to his servant, Go now, look towards the sea. And he went and he looked, and there was nothing. And he said, Go again. He does this seven times, and he sees nothing until the last time, where the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is, is rising from the sea, just this little cloud. And he said, go up and tell Ahab, prepare your chariot, go down, lest the rain stop you. Hurry up. It's this little cloud, the size of a, a hand in the sky. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He had high points. He had low points. But he called out to God persistently, fervently, continuously, knowing that God was able. I hope these inform the way that we pray. I hope these different types of prayer help to direct us. But I, but I think that as we consider the call to prayer, in the very first phrase about if anyone is suffering and sickness. I think that, as Thomas Matton says, sickness is God's messenger to call us to meet him. I think I floundered in understanding prayer and in my dependence on God until personal experience with sickness in my family and suffering, that's done more to grow my prayer than anything else in life. In, t- in 2015, we started to hear from our daughter Rebecca that she was having stomach problems and various other ailments. And by 2018, it got bad enough that we started consulting specialists and doctors and about 15 different practices and didn't find any answers. By 2021, Rebecca couldn't function anymore in college, and so we brought her home and she stayed in a dark room. She battled constant headaches, insomnia, pain. We finally got a proper diagnosis and began her treatment, which continues to today. But in August of 2022, we called the elders of the church 
we, we wanted them to pray for Rebecca, and they came. They laid hands on her. They prayed for her healing. She was able to go back to college later that month, and when she did, she shared a testimony on Instagram, and I shared it with the elders, and I got permission to pass on to you today. It was a picture of her bedroom that was flooded with light, and she said today was a big day. It may seem weird that I cried over a picture of my room, but there's so much more to it. Within this room, this bed, these four walls, there's been so much suffering, so many tears, so much grief. Lyme disease and all that has come with it has been the hardest battle of my life. It took everything from me. I spent every minute of every day stuck in my bed with constant pain and no light. It felt like it felt so freeing when I finally opened the curtains today and let the light in after nine months of darkness and so much pain. Over these nine months, I've learned so many hard, amazing lessons that have changed me, have changed my relationship with God. I love the verse that says God has, is no dark, that says in God there is no darkness and that darkness is as light with him. I now understand that what it means on a deeper level. Even in the darkness of my room, God's light was shining. He gave me hope, joy, peace, and comfort, and the greatest gift of a relationship with him. It doesn't make logical sense why I would have hope and joy and peace and comfort, but I did. I had really a lot of hard days, but God gave me the strength and courage I needed to keep fighting and to endure and to lean on him. It was anything but easy, but he constantly, but to not be constantly weighed down by the never-ending pain and suffering that I was going through. But I made the choice to continue to trust God, and he gave me the strength to continue to trust him, to surrender to him and his plan for my life. Sometimes I gave the pain, gave into the pain in the deep darkness, but God used his word, the people around me, to shine a light into my life. Now I'm headed back to college and starting the next chapter of my life after so much growth. I'm ready to continue growing. I'm ready to continue to always be growing closer to God. He's my joy, my hope, my peace, my comfort, no matter what comes in this next chapter of my life. Nothing in all the world can separate me from the love of God. May his light shine bright through me so that he may be glorified. It's true what Thomas Manton said. God's dearest saints may experience the sorest sickness And if God afflicts you with an aching head, you will have an abundant reward if he gives you a better heart with it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you know our hearts. Our hearts are desirous to grow in our faith in you, our reality, our our realization of your existence, that you are someone who's here and present and we can talk to in our need, in in our suffering, in our sickness, but also in our times of of cheer, Lord, I pray that our conversation with you would grow. Lord, wherever it is at today for my brothers and sisters, I pray that you would grow it to the next step in your pace and in your time. And Lord, use your word today to grow us to be more dependent on you and to grow in prayer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of